I wished I would have stayed on vacation for the rest of my life. Too bad I'm here. Deal with it. <laughs> um, so tonight we're going to be going through, actually we're going to back up into 10 a little bit because of how it, uh, how the flow of the passage goes, and then um, we'll get into 11. Um, so, how are we feeling? Doing well? Doing well? All right. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention, some of you maybe have heard about this. Um, well, you certainly heard about it when Jana was here for with Bridges of Hope. We are putting together this community uh, warming shelter down in Brainerd um, area. So uh, that's been going on this week. If you're interested or if you have questions about it, a bunch of people from Timberwood have been participating in the sleeping out. More people will be sleeping out um, the rest of this week. And so... Bridges of Hope is kind of spearheading it, but it's a community event, and uh, a bunch of people have been calling me, asking me about it. I'm more than happy to talk about it. Maybe you heard me on WJJY on Monday morning. You can admit that you weren't listening to Phil because he's not here. <laughs> listening to that heathen station, WJJY. Um, so I'm really excited about um, it and taking care of those in our community that don't have a place to sleep at night. Um, so let's open with a word of prayer, and we're, uh, we're definitely going to need it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight as a group of individuals that want to acknowledge our place in your kingdom and acknowledge our communal existence, not only in this community, but in the Brainerd Lakes area and Minnesota and, and really in the global church. And as we come to this text, Lord, we ask for additional grace and mercy from you. Holy Spirit, we, we are trying and we continue to try to understand what it is that you are communicating to us through this text. And we know that we don't often get it, and so we just acknowledge that up front, and we want to get it. So help us understand. Help us see and hear the things that are only from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Amy's been with you guys for two weeks. I think it went really well. Uh, I was able to catch it, catch up with it. Um, fairness, I watched it on Thursday morning on vacation, even though I shouldn't have probably been watching it because I was on vacation, but I was so anxious to watch it. Um, so we are starting in 1017, and then we're going to roll through 11 and 12. So... Um, then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, um, not Handmaid's Tale Gilead, different Gilead, the first Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, uh, out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites, 
and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went up with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So I, sh- I should have mentioned, because we have a new person, not, I'm not pointing you out, you know who you are, we're in the book of Judges. I, I just assumed that we all knew that we were in Judges. You're like, where are we even at? What's even happening? Judges 10, or Judges 10, 17 and following. It's interesting, as we were at this conference, there was the, all these liturgical moments, and I felt... <laughs> I felt very awkward because um, after they would read the scripture, they would say the word of the Lord, and then all these liturgical people knew what to say, and I was like, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> what was I supposed to say, Russ? When you say the word of the Lord, then what, do you, what does the congregation say? Like, praise be to God or something, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. Different, must have been a different liturgy. So the, the Gileadites find themselves in this place where they do not have a leader. Now, I, I want to just continue to remind us that this is descriptive. What we're going to read tonight and what we have been reading, most of it, if not all of it, is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is a description of the history of the nation of Israel. It is often not a prescription of how we should behave. Okay? Descriptive, not prescriptive. So I just want to continue to put that forward. So the Gileadites find this problem. The Ammonites, big bad Ammonites, are are ready. Uh, They're going to fight the Gileadites. The Gileadites have this problem, and they don't have a leader. And so then we get this interesting flashback, like the start of the movie, uh, uh, going to continue this motif that Amy was talking about. Movie starts, and we get the scene, and the Gileadites have a problem, and they're like, we need a leader. So then we flash back to Jephthah, and we get this mighty warrior. Re- remember, who was the last person that was called the mighty warrior? Wasn't that long ago. Gideon, yeah, Gideon was the mighty warrior. Well, the interesting thing is Jephthah is literally a mighty warrior, and Gideon was not a mighty warrior. So we see this interesting interplay of the language of uh, the writer of Judges. So we see this this declaration that, that Jephthah is a mighty warrior, but he has a problem or at least they want us to believe he has a problem, that he is the son of a prostitute. Now what's interesting is the last major leader we had was the son of a concubine. Now we have the son of a prostitute. Now the distinction between a concubine and a prostitute is a concubine would have lived in the home of the... um, the head of the household, the male, and would have been a servant, sort of, would have produced children for this individual. This prostitute would have, and I'm saying this because the commentators use the same language, would have been a professional prostitute. Now, (laughs) it's so hilarious that first night on Wednesday nights, and we're talking about prostitutes. (laughs) What kind of church is this? Well, it's one where we read the text verse by verse, and so then we have some challenges where we have to talk about things like prostitutes. So, uh, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute, meaning this woman had no connection to uh, the male's uh, household benefits. Certainly, she wouldn't have lived in the household but when she, w- when she would have given birth to Jephthah, he would have gone to be a part of his father's house because the male 
in this patriarchal, patriarchal society, the male determines your lineage uh, within the birth situation, not the female. So uh, Jephthah has a bit of a, a challenge because his mom's a prostitute, but his dad clearly has uh, some influence. And we see this, this story being played out where uh, Gilead, Jephthah's dad, has other kids with his uh, wife. Those kids don't like Jephthah. So what do they do? They drive him out of the land. Now, more than likely, the reason why they're getting rid of him or driving him out is because he will take up some of the inheritance. Now, at face value, we don't really see what a big deal this is. So the Israelites were instructed in Deuteronomy and Leviticus about how they were to take care and how the inheritance would work and how they were to take care of foreigners and all these things. And by them kicking Jephthah out of the house, it is going against everything that God has commanded the Israelites to do. The Israelite world is in shambles, and that is to put it nicely. So Jephthah has this experience of uh, being born to this prostitute mother, and then his family doesn't even want him, and so he gets kicked out. And so then he basically grows up fighting. And we know that by this description of this mighty warrior. So he's a fighter, and he goes off to this land, uh, and he puts together basically a band of misfits. Not like misfit toys, but like actual misfits. I mean, the description is worthless fellows collected around Jephthah. <laughs> like, I don't think you want your children associating with worthless fellows. My mom would always say, you're guilty by association. Certain kids you don't ever hang out with, they're going to end up in jail. I didn't ever believe her until one of them ended up in the penitentiary. So I guess my mom was right. So Jephthah is known as this mighty warrior, and the Gilead folks, the Gileadites, have a problem. And so they go to him and they say, hey man, you're a great warrior, and we need a great warrior. What don't they do? They don't ask God any questions. They don't seek God's face. They don't say, hey God, you're our king. Who should be our leader? They look and they say, we have a worldly problem. Those folks over there want to kill us. Let's just not talk to God, because we're not really talking to him anyways. And who is the biggest, baddest, meanest, most uh, influential warrior that we can find? It's that guy over there. We've already kicked that guy out of our uh, people, but maybe we'll get him to come back. And so the standards that they use have nothing to do with seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's face. I mean, they don't even cast lots and roll, literally roll the dice to say, maybe it should be uh, Jephthah. They're not drawing straws. They're not doing anything. They're like, we want that guy because we think he provides us with the best chance of beating those guys. That's a problem. Because God is supposed to be their king and their ruler. It's a theocracy. God is the head, and God is deciding who's going to be the leaders. And the people say, we don't need God. You know, like the Punisher says, God's going to sit this one out. They go and select their own leader. Except they have a problem because they've burned these bridges. They've kicked him out. They've said bad things about him. And so Jephthah becomes this person that, that they have to, in essence, suck up to and provide him with all of these things. Did you not hate me, verse 7, and drive me out of your house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Basically, because we think you give us the best chance to beat these people. And we can't miss this. Remember, they have God. <laughs> they don't need Jephthah. 
but they think they need Jephthah because they are clouded, their vision is clouded by seeing worldly things and seeing their life through the eyes of the cultural world that they find themselves in. So the metric that they're using for choosing a leader has nothing to do with worship of God, obedience to God. It is all about themselves. That is a problem. Because when we do that, well, we get bad results. So at first they just ask him, hey, come fight with us. And then he negotiates with them, and he's like, okay, I'll come fight with you. I'll come lead your folks if you give me basically the top ruling over all of the people. Now, it's interesting because this this location of Mizpah is listed as the place where um, they kind of make this declaration. And there's these shaded references to the Lord, to, to God, that they're doing these things before the Lord. Well, the problem with that is Mizpah is not a holy site. Mizpah is not anywhere near a holy site. The only thing that is at Mizpah is the people. And so Jephthah doesn't care about God as the audience. He just wants the leaders of Gilead to come and to show the rest of the Gileadites, we are selecting this person. Really, God has no function in this conversation. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? I mean, the irony of this statement, Jephthah isn't even been around And now he's like, all of a sudden, he's back on the team. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah. Notice that. What should it say? Thus says the Lord. Jephthah has placed himself in this position. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or, to the, land, or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they sent also the king to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all the people, all his people, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, disposed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shamash, your God, gives you to possess? And all the Lord our God has disposed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror, and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, significant, decided this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So we have this interesting back and forth going on between the king of the Ammonites, and it, it gets 
very confusing. We have the Ammonites, and then we have the Amorites that sometimes we, we just, in our brains, we mix them together. So the Ammonites send this letter about why they're going to fight. <laughs> and then Jephthah responds with a different letter. And what's fascinating, and we don't really have the time to get into all the minutiae of the details, but both of them, as one commentator says, like great politicians, misrepresent the facts in order to fit their own story. <laughs> so both of them are making claims, historical claims, that are mostly true, but false. They are remembering history in a way that isn't actually accurate. And how fascinating it is that, that their memory of history fits what they want it to, and it doesn't fit the truth. <laughs> Certainly we don't ever do that. No, we want the history to tell us what we want the history to tell us even if it's not the actual truth. That leads to all sorts of problems. To say it differently, history is history is the truth, whether we like the truth or not. So both of these kings are spinning history in a way that makes them look the best. That's a problem. Because, frankly, it is just a bald-faced lie. And just because you have the power of the pen to write something down doesn't make it true. We'll say, this is the inerrant word of God. Okay, we could get into a whole other discussion about that. This retelling of history is false. What both of these individuals are saying is not true. <laughs> and unfortunately, we do it all the time. We do it on a personal level. We do it on a local level. We do it on a national level. We do it on an international level. And until we are willing to face the reality of the truth of history in all its dirty, nasty details, we will live in a created fantasy that isn't true. And again, if we had so much more time, we could get into some of these things, which we will hopefully at some point. But after being in Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, we do it all the time. <laughs> we do it all the time. We do it right here and we do it in our own lives. Well, that wasn't actually what happened. Yes, it is. That's what happened. So how is it that the leader of the Israelites is doing this? Jephthah has no time for God. Jephthah does not care about the truth of who Yahweh is. He does not care about the supremacy of God in his life and in the nation's life. How do we know this? If we look at verse 22, 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, this is Jephthah talking, disposed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will not... Will you not possess what Shamash, your God, gives you to possess? Well, Shamash isn't even their God. He is a God, or Shamash is the name of a ancient Near Eastern God, but it wasn't even the God of the Amorites. I mean the Ammonites. See, I did it right there. We get this glimpse into Jephthah's theology when he equates Yahweh with Shamash. And he says, our God, Yahweh, which is a big problem. He's not our God. He is the God, capital T, capital G, is the same as your God, Shamash. Our God gave us this land, 
And so why don't you go ask your God to give you some land, and then you can have that land. Jephthah doesn't get it. God is in control of everything. God gives the Israelites their land, and he gives the other people the land that they possess. So we get this glimpse at how far away Jephthah is from being a true worshiper of Yahweh. And that has some significant, significant consequences, which we are going to get to. He's using God as this token. But we have this glimpse, right? Because for one moment, one brief clip, he says, the Lord, the judge. We're like, oh, maybe he's figured it out. Meaning God is the judge over all of these judges. And then in verse 29, we have a problem. I have a problem with the text because I don't know what to do with this after we move from here. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah to Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you will give me, give the Ammonites into my hand, interesting, into his hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Whoops. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So we have this interesting thing going on because we've talked about this phrase about the Spirit of the Lord descending on the judge. And clearly, the Spirit of the Lord descends on Jephthah, and Jephthah gathers up all these troops. That's this reference of going around to these different areas. And they go out, and they have victory. But in the meantime, Jephthah makes this vow. So the Spirit of the Lord descends upon Jephthah, he gathers up all these troops, and he's like, I'm not quite sure if we have enough here to win. I mean, think about the irony of that story. We have Gideon with 300 individuals winning victory. Jephthah gathers up all these people, this unknown, unnamed number of people with this great warrior who he is, and he's unsure if he is going to have victory. So what does he do? He makes this ridiculous and obscene vow to God. It's this, God, if you will do this one thing for me, i.e. give us victory, then I will give you this. Now, Oftentimes, when we're in these positions, we, we, we're afraid to undershoot. You know, like if we're making an offer, like I made an offer to somebody on Facebook Marketplace today, and I just totally lowballed them. Like, it's been on here for nine weeks. Maybe you'll take this. With God, we don't ever undershoot. We're like way over the top. And it's typically really not smart. Jephthah's like, God, if you give us victory, clearly he doesn't trust God. He doesn't need to make this vow. He doesn't need to make this vow. Whatever comes out of my house, when I get home, I'm going to sacrifice it. Yeah. So Jephthah comes to his house at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter comes out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. 
For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And he said to him, and she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, uh, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So he makes this vow. And so often, when we read passages in Scripture, again, when they sit with us in a particular way, we try and do grammatical gymnastics, we try and do theological gymnastics, we try and do hermeneutical, interpretive gymnastics to make it say, hopefully, what it doesn't say. Because at first we say, well, maybe the vow that he made when he said that, he certainly wasn't thinking that one of his family members would be the first one to come out of the house. If you've ever been away from home and you have a child, especially only one child, and they anticipate your arrival, Who's the first person that's going to come out of the house? Probably your kid. Well, maybe it could have been his dog. He didn't have a dog. I I acknowledge that back then they would have had animals in their home, so they could have been an animal, but the language that's used is of a human sacrifice. So, it seems to be the case that Jephthah was willing to sacrifice a human being on the altar to the Lord. That's a problem. If Some people say, well, what? he didn't know it was going to be his daughter. He still was willing to sacrifice a human being. In all of God's economy, in all of God's scripture, God does not condone the death, the sacrifice of a human being. And I know we say, well, what about Abraham and Isaac? God commanded Abraham to do that, knowing he had a plan for how he was going to deal with it. God does not ask Jephthah to make the vow. He doesn't command Jephthah to make the vow. Jephthah has no time for God. He is a warrior hanging out with a bunch of thugs in a uh, land that was not even his homeland. He sees an opportunity to gain power and might and authority in a worldly sense. He grabs a hold of it. He, He makes this absolutely ridiculous statement because he has a way with words and Bingo, his daughter comes out of his house. And what does he do? What's the first thing he does? He blames his daughter. You see that? It's your fault. No. I mean, I've known this is coming for, well, for a very long time. This passage is extremely hard to read. And we have to acknowledge that this pattern has not gone away. Who gets killed? His daughter. Who gets blamed right out of the gate? The victim. 
notice, we've been talking about how females have played this, this central role in the nation of Israel. And now it changes. And this powerful man does something completely ludicrous. And the first thing he does is he blames the victim for what she's done, and she hasn't done a single thing wrong. And fast forward to today, and a female is victimized, and what do we do? Well, what was she wearing? How much had she had to drink? Did it actually happen that way? Are you sure? Maybe you shouldn't have been in that spot. Maybe you're making this up because you're trying to bring this man down. Baloney. We have to knock it off. It's right here in Scripture. So it's not a worldly thing. It's a human thing. Guys, we have a problem. Nothing has changed. We blame the woman, and the woman has done literally nothing but rush out to embrace her father. And what does he do? He blames her. She's done nothing wrong. Why does she think, she says to her dad, like, okay, I guess you're going to have to do this thing. She has watched her dad her whole life have no time for God. Why would she think that her dad would have made such a ridiculous vow to a God that he really has no time for? You know, we say, well, well, she was okay with it. No, she wasn't. She asks for two months to go out. Why does she want two months? Well, I would assume she's thinking, I mean, he spent his whole life not being obedient to God. He makes one ridiculous statement. Maybe in two months he will have forgotten and he won't do this to me. I am his only, literally his only child. Jephthah has two months to reconsider this decision that he has made. <laughs> and I know we wrestle. We, we wrestled for a good long time today. We would have wrestled for longer. But he's made a vow with God. The massive, gargantuan challenge is if we believe that Yahweh is a God who desires a child to be sacrificed, that God is not a God that I want anything to do with. The Israelites have spent generations making vows to God and breaking them. (laughs) And who is God? God is a gracious and merciful God who comes back around them. Jephthah has done all of these things in his life to do, have nothing to do with God, and, and he decides that now, because, because of what? It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Four days. Four days. This death was so significant that for four days out of the year, year after year, the people of Israel would gather and they would mourn the devastation of the loss of one child. The significance of that cannot be lost on us. When we talk about 
people who have been abused or killed, people who have been run over by people in power, and their lives have been taken from them because of no fault of their own, God cares about those people. As image bearers of God, God mourns when his people are killed. And we say, I'm just, can we just talk about something else? No. <laughs> Again, this is the Bible. <laughs> so, like, if we don't like it, duh. are we willing to take time in our lives every single day? year, a day, two days, four days to mourn the loss of those people who have been killed like Jephthah's daughter. This is uncomfortable. And I think what's most uncomfortable about it is to see the reality of human history. We think we have figured it out. We think we're so different than the world because we should be. But the patterns of people who identify as followers of God oftentimes have not changed at all. We see the same thing happening again and again and again and again and again. What is it going to take to get us to change? We're not even going to have time to talk about our big polygamy debate. So it's going to be really riveting. Yes. Why does God allow this to happen? So why, why would God allow it to happen? And why would this moron, who has had no time for God, suddenly be afraid of God? Well, the answer to the first question is, you know, we... We see it when we get to Kings, which we're not going to get to King, well, to, to Samuel, which we're not going to get there, because obviously, but we're going to start to see these allusions to this was the time when Israel didn't have a king. So God is more than willing to let his people make colossal mistakes. And certainly, the Israelites fawn for a king, and God's like, you don't want this. You don't want this. We want to be like everybody else. And finally he says, you know what? Good luck. So we see God throughout history allowing people to do atrocious things. The question, why doesn't he intervene, is the monumental question around the problem of evil. We don't know. We don't know. Why does this guy make this decision to follow through? Why, why does anyone <laughs> double down on terrible decisions and continue to make them knowing the consequence? I think that is the human condition. You know, I, I've done this thing and it's resulted in a problem. And I go back, and I just keep making the same mistake, even though it keeps resulting in devastation in my life. And everyone from the outside says, decide differently. Like, I don't know. 
along with that, why does the writer of Judges, again, we're, we're going to get here in a few verses, certain judges that get one sentence. So why does this guy, who makes just ridiculous, terrible decisions, why does he get all this ink? I think a lot of it is to show the value that God has to say when something like this takes place, the nation needs to stop and, and remember and lament. And the purpose and the intention of the remembering and lamenting is to cause change. That is the intent of the, the remembering. All right. You're like, well, when Amy was here, she only taught for 40 minutes. Wow, why are you talking so much? The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? Again, remember this, okay? Remember before we were cursing people that didn't fight? Now these people are mad because they didn't get to fight. <laughs> What's going on? And in fact, we will burn your house over you with fire. Like there's, I mean, this is burning mad, pun intended. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not answer my call. No, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? I mean, this is literally civil war. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Excuse me, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in, city, in his city in Gilead. So we have this Jephthah, great guy, starts a civil war. And he starts a civil war and he sets up this checkpoint that is a tribal checkpoint where if you don't speak the way we speak, you're dead. If you don't communicate the way we communicate, we kill you. I mean, I don't think I really need to say much more about that. Anyways, they kill 42,000. Now, it says Ephraimites, and I get that because it's a nation. These are Israelites. They are killing their own people. Things in Israel, we say they're bad. They're really bad. And it was only six years. <laughs> Remember when they were, they were being oppressed in exile? For a short period of time, they cry out to God and God responds to them. Things are bad, and notice they're not crying out to God. After him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. Notice the contrast. Jephthah one kid, this guy, Ibsen, 60. Now, it doesn't take a biological genius to acknowledge he had many wives. So, again, just a brief snippet. If we want to talk about biblical marriage, I probably wouldn't reference these verses. <laughs> or, frankly, most of the Old Testament, okay? Okay? We can talk about that later. We don't have time. We're already way over. Um, 
and the introverts that don't like to talk in, in discussions are like, keep talking. After him, Eblon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. Again, two verses. We don't know anything about this guy. Why does Jephthah get all of the stuff that he gets? After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Again, donkeys, big thing, big money grab, big powerful thing. And he judged Israel eight years. Forty sons. How many daughters? We don't know. Again, multiple wives. Many, many wives. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Whew. Okay. Let's just take a collective deep breath. Let me just say this again. The discussion groups are for us, the community that is gathered here tonight, to engage with one another in a way that is honoring to God and edifying to each other. We are not going to agree on some of these things. There is not right answers on these things. Feel free. There is no judgment in the conversations that you have. So let's just embrace the gift that we have in these discussion groups and value one another as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, image bearers of God, and embrace the joy and freedom that comes from this. If you want to all gang up on me, that's fine. We'll do that at 755.